to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, censoring the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Great. Today is December 6th, if you're if this is coming out on Monday. So that means it's St. Nicholas's Day. St. Nicholas's Day. <laughs> yes. Yes, St. Nicholas. Is there a proper um, way to celebrate St. Nicholas's Day? Well, that's, I think, culturally relative. Like, there are certain European countries where they do a big thing about St. Nicholas. Um, I'm not sure what those customs are, gift-giving, celebrating other other things. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, St. Nicholas is the... Uh, well, first of all, St. Nicholas was an actual person. He was the, the bishop of Myra in Asia Minor in the 4th century. He attended the Council of Nicaea. Uh, he was on the side of the what are now called the Orthodox. And... Um, a lot of legends have grown up around him, and he turned into Santa Claus. Mm. So that's the uh, origin of Santa. Um, <laughs> the disdain with which you said that. You're just like, Santa. I don't like Santa. I mean, oh, no, wait, we need to delete that because I'm going to get everyone mad at me. It's what fine. I don't like. What I don't like is Santa displacing Jesus. See, that's my problem mm-hmm. is Christmas has become like a six-month thing in the United States where it's all about stuff other than Jesus. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think all that stuff, as long as it's adorning the central and keeping Jesus at the center, um, like I'm talking with – so by the, all, by the way, it's also Hanukkah. Yeah. And so – my Jewish friends are trying to celebrate Hanukkah in the midst of this Christmas mess. And what I've realized is this Christmas mess makes it hard to celebrate actual the birth of the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. All this other mess makes it hard to. Uh, but anyway, my point is I better stop talking about this because otherwise I'm going to ramble forever. But yeah, mm-hmm. so uh, just think about St. Nicholas and um, the the funny joke that I sent you earlier this week. Funny joke. Yeah, uh, the one about St. Nicholas and the little kid sitting on the lap saying... Oh, yeah. How do you pronounce that word anyway? Is it homoousios or homoiousios? So those right. are the two words. And uh-huh. this was the central of the con- controversy. Homoousios means the same substance. And homoiousios, which differs by one Greek letter, is of a similar substance. So the dispute was whether the person of Jesus Christ was the same substance or similar to God the Father. And mm-hmm. the Orthodox perspective is that it is uh, they are the same substance. So mm-hmm. that line and that word ends up in the Greek text of the Nicene Creed, and our Nicene Christian friends today still confess it. Usually in English it's translated as one in being with the Father or consubstantial with the Father or something of that nature. Got it. I was like, that sounds familiar. I feel like that's a theological term I may have learned when learning about the Trinity. So maybe that's where I've heard it or seen it. Oh, but, uh, you yeah. sh- did you did you cover the Trinity in your systematics class? We did. We did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a that was a. I, I really wish I had more time in that class, or rather, just I wish kind of like that was the only class I took this semester. It was significantly more past more fast paced and high level than I thought. Like it was a 100 level class. So I thought mm-hmm. I'd be okay to take it. But like 
there's a lot going on. There's like uh, discussions of Christian history, uh, discussions of the, uh, you know, the Council of Nicaea and just all these theologians and philosophers and other vocabularies that I'm just not familiar with. Just I needed more time to really sit with it. I appreciated the content Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, I really enjoyed the readings, but it was difficult to keep up with. And she's one of those teachers that like thinks everything is important and everything is good. So just like me. Right. So she assigns all of those readings in the doctrines. You know what I'm saying? So like every single one of our reading assignments for every week has been at least 50 pages. And I'm like, I cannot be I cannot be hanging with this because like every page can merit like a whole essay. You know what I'm saying? There's there's so much going on. But it's it's good though. It's good though. I just wish I took less credit so I could fully appreciate it. But it's over. I just took my final for my systematic theology class a couple of days ago, so I can rest easy with that. That was easily my most stressful mm-hmm. class of the semester. So it's pretty much smooth sailing from here. I just got projects and papers to write. It's great. Well, that's good. I'm so proud of you. Thank you very much. Anyway, uh, shall we get into the content for the week? Sure. Very good. Before we go ahead and do that, I want to remind y'all that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So this week we are in, well, we're out of the Doctrine and Covenants now. We have uh, finished talking, uh, d- Section 138 was the last one. So now we are moving into uh, the end game for the year. And uh, the end game mm-hmm. is going to be Official Declarations 1 and 2, as well as uh, the Articles of Faith, which is actually found in the uh, Parlor of Great Price. But uh, we'll be discussing those things today. So the Articles of Faith, I think all of us have been or at least those of us who were raised in the church, uh, we have been taught the articles of faith in one form or another since primary. Like we even have songs for the articles of faith. And mm. let me, let me tell you a funny story about this actually, Derek, the first time that I suspected uh, that there was any kind of indoctrination going on uh, in primary was when I realized that the articles of faith songs didn't rhyme And I'm just like, why are we singing these songs Uh that don't rhyme? They don't make any sense. Like, I can't remember these songs because they don't rhyme. And I was like, oh, because they're not actually songs. They are, I mean, I wasn't thinking this necessarily, that they're doctrines, but I was like, there's some, I thought to myself that there's some other purpose behind these songs other than, you know, sounding good. Because like some of these melodies were just weird. Like we didn't even learn all of the songs. I remember playing through them a little bit later in life and just being like, these are ugly songs. These are ugly melodies. But they're to like the end of teaching the Articles of Faith, which is kind of like a badge of honor in primary. If you memorize all 13 of the Articles of Faith, then you like get this special like little award. Like the girls got necklaces and the boys got tie tacks. And best believe I earned that tie tech when I was eight years old. Oh. So I-, I flexed hard on my primary brothers and sisters when I was a kid. So that was a whole thing. Mm. Um, anyway, articles of faith, uh, OD one, OD two, uh, official declaration one deals with the end of polygamy, the end of the practice of plural marriage, and uh, this is a document written by uh, Wilford Woodruff, 
uh, co-signed by Lorenzo Snow, and there's also some excerpts from talks by Wilford Woodruff uh, present after the actual manifesto itself. And then official declaration two is um, the the end of the practice of the temple and priesthood restrictions on people of African descent. So, yeah, I don't know if you feel to uh, start with any one of these in particular, um, but that is more or less what we're a brief outline of what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, I want to start with the Articles of Faith. Okay, that makes some sense. Let's go with the Articles of Faith. Okay, do you want to uh, add any other further words of introduction, any uh, prefatory words, or do you want to just dive right into it? No, I just want to say that I find them very useful to addressing misconceptions or challenges both from within the church and from outside of the church. Alrighty. I'm not really into apologetic uh, efforts uh, other than just living like Christ lived, and that's the best uh, defense that, of, of, of the life that I have in Christ. Right. But I think a lot of the objections that people have can be answered by the Articles of Faith. And if in, it, in their historical context, it was actually written towards outsiders with an apologetic purpose. Joseph was trying to explain, you know, like, we're not all these weird people. We're good, and we're just mostly normal Christians, and we're very much in line with Christianity. And I think there's a mm-hmm. lot of tendency within the church and outside of the church to see Mormonism, and I'm using that term uh, on purpose, Mormonism, to see Mormonism as a fourth Abrahamic religion in the con- in addition to well, there's Judaism, and then Christianity is kind of an offshoot of, of Judaism, and then uh, Islam is kind of an offshoot of both Christianity and Judaism, and then Mormonism isn't Christianity. It has Jesus, but, you know, Islam has Jesus too. They just have, yeah. a, they have a different role for him, the role of a prophet, and in some sense a messiah, and in some sense uh, he'll be returning. But... Um, so just because you have Jesus doesn't mean you're Christian, according to mm-hmm. these people. And they're saying, well, Mormonism is actually a fourth Abrahamic. I'm like, no, we're Christian. And I think uh, even a lot of Latter-day Saints really distrust other Christians and don't want to learn from anything that's published elsewhere. And if you look at this, there's a continuity with us, the rest of Christianity, the rest of the uh, restoration movements of the 19th century, like the Campbellites, who are also trying to do a back-to-the-Bible kind of movement to, uh-huh. to uh, be a, a, um, a first-century church, which we get in the article uh, that says, we believe, this is the sixth, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. And so if people ask, well, why does your church do something this way? Or why does your church X, Y, Z? Some of it can be answered with, well, we're a restoration of the New Testament church. And so it's going to be like, there's certain things that I don't like about, um, uh, one thing is I wish we had more professionally trained church leaders. But unfortunately, in the first century New Testament church, we didn't have that. Jesus called... Uh, fishermen and and random other people, and they didn't have seminaries. They didn't go to union. <laughs> no, they did not. 
they did not go to union. Um, but so it's not like I'm and of course I wish we had better trained people. But I think what happened is they got the training another way. Mm-hmm. They were very much steeped in the textual tradition. Like look at Paul; he had training. It was not at Union, but he knew the scriptures well, and so they had oral uh, teachings that they passed down. And Paul testifies to this when he says, you know, I'm passing over onto you what was passed over onto me, like he says in 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, 15, mm-hmm. talking about the Lord's Supper and then also the resurrection, right? So my point is, they had training, they just did it differently. And now right. we need to make sure that our people are are well trained. And so there's other things of, of this nature, like, yes, we do believe in the Bible. I think a lot of Latter-day Saints, I think it's part of coming where I'm coming from. The contrast is clear. Like, I don't think Latter-day Saints use the Bible except they take out a few verses here and there to decorate something they were going to say already. Mm-hmm. So um, I have to confess, I don't know what to do with with Article 10, we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and the restoration of the ten tribes. I don't know what to do with that. Like, how, what it, what exactly that looks like or what that implies or what that commits us to. I honestly don't know. I think that's a um, something that in the 19th century was a very important topic, but mm-hmm. I don't really uh, put much on that. Verse 11 this yeah. is really good for our interfaith work. Like, we should be able to respect Muslims and Jews and everyone else because we claim the privilege of worshiping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege. Let them worship how, where, or what they may. And also um, this all men should extend to other members of the church as well. Right, right, yes. Yeah. Because it doesn't say all people outside the church. It says all people right 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 um it's important to note note that we believe in being subject to kings presidents rulers and magistrates in honor obeying honoring and sustaining law that has exceptions yeah and we talked about some of those back in uh what was it 134 135 we talked about some of these exceptions yeah in particular um thinkers in the church have noticed this and they've mm-hmm. they've said yeah th- this has exceptions so uh, we don't need to take that and i love how it ends like a lot of um a lot of the defense of the church would happen better if we lived into uh 13 about being honest true chaste benevolent virtuous doing good to all men um which conflicts with some of the uh, human rights violations that our church has argued for in our own courts against LGBT is. folks, right? Like, is, how can yes. you say you believe in doing good to all men when you're actually trying to destroy the families of queer people? That's not that's not doing good to all men. Right. It's not letting people worship how, where, or what they may. Right? Mm-hmm. It's essentially saying everyone else needs to live by our view of marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not right. Anyway. So I've been doing all this talking. I should I should uh, <laughs> stop talking now. Basically, no, I could totally go fun. on and on and on. Like Talmadge did on the Articles of Faith. We don't want that. We don't want to see that. People love Talmadge going on and on. Talmadge was brilliant, bro. So like, go on yeah, and on. Yeah, but people don't like me going on and on. 
Bro, you know that's a lie. People love you going on and on. <laughs> this is why the people is here. They want to hear Derek going on and on. You stay dropping. No, they want to hear me torment you with jokes. <laughs> yeah, they want to hear that too. And I'm very upset at the amount of Schadenfreude some people experience when they hear you tell me jokes. Just what is? I don't, I don't like how much pleasure my pain gives people, but I get it. I, uh, I mean, I was mm-hmm. just joking with somebody yesterday about how. You know, white tears keep me young. I even started unironically this little calendar of, you know, how many days since my last incident of making white people cry. By the way, as of yesterday morning, mm-hmm. that calendar has reset to zero. So that's no, exciting. <laughs> but yeah, man. Um, yeah, the, uh, the the standouts for me this time around were 11 and 13. Thir- 13 because... I believe the church could use a healthy amount of honesty with itself about what it is, how it got here, why people outside the church view us the way that they do, why our policies are what they are, et cetera. I I think I say this in the uh, official Declaration 2 video I released about a month ago, but I believe we got to be honest about our racial past if we're going to be able to properly address the racial issues that plague us today. And I think we got to be honest about how we feel about our LGBTQ siblings. I think one of the biggest lies that Christians tell ourselves is that we love LGBTQ folks while denying them God's love, while denying the same respect and opportunities for fellowship because of their uh, immutable identities. I I could really tie uh, a lot of our biggest issues today to our inability to be honest with ourselves as a church. But I but I do have hope that uh, as folks speak up and speak out, that this can begin to fix itself. Um, I also really appreciate you pointing out, you know, claiming the privilege of worshiping God in, uh, in Article of Faith 11. Because yeah, I believe in uh, that for people of other faiths, certainly. Uh, but I believe that for people inside the faith as well. We we love to like police how people worship in this church. Did, did I tell you what happened like my second or third Sunday here at church? Uh-oh, what happened? So it was fast and testimony meeting, right? And um, what had happened was uh, an investigator got up to give her uh, testimony, and she gave a beautiful testimony. And then after her testimony was given, there was applause in the chapel from uh, other people, you know, from some people that she had brought with her, uh, including her own children. Mm -hmm. After the second testimony was born, there was applause again. And then a member of the bishopric got up and basically said, in essence, we don't do that here. And I was just like, come on, man. We got so many more significant problems to be addressing, so many more significant methods of quote-unquote worship that we could address. And y'all are mad, y'all are upset, y'all are policing applause in this chapel like come on man come on like we we just got finished talking when when, when was this a week or two ago about worship styles about how singing and making merry and dancing were appropriate forms of worship when moved upon by the holy ghost if people want to clap let them clap you know what i'm saying and further if people feel like their worship involves them taking a step away from the church for a season from the institutional church for a season let them do that like let's not putting let's let's not attach so much virtue to you know church attendance to being at church every sunday especially if church is not a healthy place for you to be just i have 
like I, I, I agree with this article of faith in theory. Um, and, you know, if it just looked a bit better in practice in terms of letting people worshiping how, where, and what they may, especially within our chapels, I think I'd be able to say this with a little more power because I don't feel like we actually believe this. We, we have a set prescribed way of worship and that just, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when, when people violate that even a little bit, no matter how genuine that form of worship is, we got to police it. We got to tone it down. We value yeah. conformity over actual unity, over actual diversity, over actually letting right. people move or let the spirit move upon them in whatever forms of worship they feel. And, you know, I don't think it was like this before the mid-20th century. It wasn't. Like, the 19th century, there was more flexibility and more freedom, you know, getting up and speaking in tongues, and they probably preached Mm -hmm. in in the way in whichever they, you know, they probably, a lot of these were converts from other traditions, and they probably just kind of did their services the way they, you know, it wasn't standardized like this. And people are all, like, standardizing it. You know what that is? That's Starbucksification. And we don't even like oh. Starbucks. They violate oh. the word of wisdom. Dang. Like, Jesus did not bleed and die on a cross so that we could be a corporation. Ooh. Right? And I think what it is is they're privileging the comfort of the, um, I guess, the, the mainstream people, right? The people that show up, the people that right. grew up in the church, the people right. that, like, I want to be able to go to any church in the world, any ward in the world, and have it be exactly the same. I'm like, that's for your comfort, not for the local people. Like, uh-huh. if I go to a ward in Uganda or Argentina, and it looks exactly like what makes me comfortable, that's not serving Christ. That's like they're doing their whole thing the way what would be happy for me as an American if I go visit there. Like, no, they should worship authentically in the style that is uh, appropriate to them and their culture and their and their uh, communities, right? And you see this in the New Testament. Every church did everything a little bit differently. And that was, some of that led to some problems. Uh-huh. But the worship, like, we have Paul's instruction on worship in 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 and, and well, 13 and 14, which is where we get this. We believe in all things. We hope all things. We should um, accept all um, uh, all worship styles that are consistent with the gospel. And by that, I mean the actual gospel, not the, the, the cultural white people gospel or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I just, it just... Like, yeah, this whole clapping thing. Oh, but here's my advice, practical advice. I have a challenge for all the listeners. I, right. I love giving listeners actual challenges, and then I forget about them, and I don't even talk about them later. <laughs> so one of them is prepare in advance. Cope ahead of time so you don't have to waste time deciding. You don't have to stress about what to do because you already know what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do if if a visitor to church starts clapping? What are you going to do if a visitor to church doesn't have a tie? What are you going to do if... And here's the thing that I've decided. I've decided immediately that if someone new to church comes in and they start clapping, I'm going to start clapping too because I don't want them to feel alone. I don't want to put them in an awkward position. I don't want... It's a commandment not to embarrass people, right? I think embarrassing people is worse than... um, I don't know. It's worse than... I I can't even think... Uh, what it's worse than, but it's it's bad, 
And I think that uh, so if people start clapping and then I, I clap too, it validates them and it includes them. It doesn't alienate them. Whereas if they start clapping and that reminds me of this one awkward time where I went to an opera. This was uh, Lormindo uh, many years ago. It's a Baroque opera. And after one particular love duet, the, the you know, the lead couple, they sang together and then they kiss and it's the end of this duet, a lovely aria. And I started clapping. And for those that don't know, opera is is more like uh, it's, it's not as 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 uh, stodgy as people think it is. Like if you want to clap in the middle of a movement and it's and it's appropriate, you can. You should cheer. You should actually it's participate. And so at the end of this thing, like I started clapping because of the the uh, and, and you'll see this. Most people you don't clap while the words are going. But like towards the end, there's the coda and then there's going to be a long piece of, of instrumental music concluding that whole thing. And so that's mm-hmm. when I was clapping and I started clapping and no one else joined in. And I thought oh. to myself, well, you're all wrong. I'm right. I'm going to keep clapping until people join in. I'm not going to back off because then it'll look like I made a mistake. Um, now, fortunately for me, I knew the opera because I'd seen it before. Maybe the others didn't and didn't realize it was the end of that particular movement, but I did, and I started clapping, and I kept clapping until it was a long, long, probably 30 seconds before people oh, wow. started. That's a long time. Wow. But then everyone <clears throat> joined in when it was clear to them that I wasn't stopping and it, everyone else was. Well, anyway, my my point is, uh, what my point is, cope ahead of time and figure out what you're going to do so you don't have to decide. So if someone's, yeah, that's kind of like I've already decided what's going to happen if someone says something racist from the public. I'm going to interrupt it. I've already decided that. It's just a matter of like. I'm going to I'm going to stand up and condemn it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care how how. Um, how awkward it makes people. The racism is even more awkward, right? Absolutely. So, I might Im- I might embarrass myself, but you know, no one's ever going to do it again. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right? You make it. You make it uncomfortable. People aren't going to do it anymore. Kind of like, <laughs> was it? <laughs> who was it? Was it? Was it <laughs> Zandra? <laughs> oh, what did she say? <laughs> Hold on. I think it was, was it, I can't remember. I think it was Sandra telling the story about the white woman who decided to touch her hair. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And she like snatched it, right? Like it was like a, it was like a young white woman too. It was like somebody who like just joined Relief Society, like this eight, 18 year old white woman and just randomly started touching her hair and, and she just snatched her fist while he was, while she was like mid playing with it and just glared at her. Like, I mean, I'm sure she's got multiple of those stories, but I, like, that's the one I remember. I'm just like, bet you won't do that again. And yeah, but no, here's what happened is Xandra, <laughs> uh, um, she decided to stick her hand in the white woman's hair. <laughs> and and then the, the the white woman was horrified. And Zandra was like, well, I thought that's what we was doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as to make it so awkward that she doesn't do it again. Um, well, anyway, so I'm not sure the details of this story exactly. I, I remember it, hearing it. But anyway, um, 
Yeah. Apparently anyway, my she's point got is, more than one white people touching my hair story. Yeah. I just wanted to say one more thing, and it's, oh, this is probably the most glorious of the Articles of Faith. It says, we believe, this is nine, we believe of all course. that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And this is something that queer folks in the church have to have memorized. We just mm-hmm. have to, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't have the privilege or the luxury of thinking that we have everything revealed because we don't. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, there's going to be many great and important things pertaining. And so I don't think we should like sit back and think that the restoration is done. Like our sources and our leaders don't even claim that it's done. So why do we have this cultural thing like, oh, we've got the proclamation on the family. We're all done with it. And we're going to get the proclamation next week. And believe me, I'm going to say something I've, stuff I've never said about it before. Because uh, I've said stuff and I want to like, oh, I need to say something new. So <laughs> Always got to say anyway, something new. We've talked about this a lot, and I want to very much have to spend time on the official declarations. I don't have a lot to say, but I do want to hear what you have to say. I don't really have a lot to say either, not particularly about polygamy anyway. I do have a few thoughts on the comments written, like the actual declaration itself, I guess, like some of the some of the uh, words used, as well as the comments found in the excerpts from the Wilford Woodruff talk. So I'll, I'll save uh, those comments till we get to that part of the discussion. Yeah. And I, I just want to say that official declaration one, in a sense, is very much an option three move. Mm-hmm. So we've got a crisis. You've got a crash. You've got the federal government bearing down on the church, locking people up, taking away, confiscating stuff, about to destroy all the temples, or not destroy it, but you know what I mean, about to like completely shut down the actual technology of the church to save people in this life and the next. And then that's a crash. There's There's three options. Option right. one is to say, Nope, we're going to keep practicing plural marriage because that's what we we have to keep it the same. We're not going to we're not going to we're going to deny the crash, right? We're just going to keep practicing. And actually some uh some sects do this to to this day. Uh they uh our our cousins in the restoration, some we've got some smaller sects that of course continue to practice plural marriage and they've mm-hmm. chosen option 1. Now option 2 would be to say, "Look, if we're defeated by the federal government, if we can't do what are what we're doing, the whole project must have been a failure. Joseph never was a prophet. Brigham never was a prophet. Like, if we're defeated, that proves it all wrong. And so, option two would be to just abandon the whole project and say, "Look, we're not gonna. It 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 failed and it didn't work." And um, option three would be to say, "You know what? We're gonna tell the story a little differently." And now we're going to say that plural marriage is not required for exaltation. We're going to say that it's not required in this life. We're going to say, and so they, they um, had to tell the, the crash. They had to tell the story in light of the crash. And I think option three thinking really went into being open to official declaration two as well, because they could have, you know, they went option one for a long time with that. Way longer. They should have, even under President McKay, they really had enough to, um, to make the change, but they didn't. (laughs) I mean, I'd go earlier than that, but you're totally right. President McKay, they had what they needed. 
Right, right. And I mean, what I'm saying is I know that we have records that they were, were discer- you know, they were thinking about should they change it or not. Yeah. And I think that's when they really should have asked the question and got the, well, obviously they should have never done it the wrong way and they should have, well, err. but anyway, um, <laughs> I think being able to say, you know what, we're going to have to say something that, that hasn't, that, that that's going to change the narrative and we're going to tell it differently and we're not stuck in option one like we were for uh for so long and then we're going to uh we're going to just we're going to rewrite the story Mm. and um yeah i do want to talk a little bit about president woodruff's statement on uh um that the Lord will never permit yeah. the president of the church to lead the church astray. Yeah. And at first, my strategy was more to like narrowly circumscribe what it means to lead astray. Mm-hmm. And to say, well, you, even if that's true, that the Lord will never lead us astray, people are o- overreaching that. And the way I used to frame it was, well, leading astray means to completely lead the church permanently and irretrievably off the path of um, salvation. That is, that, uh, that, 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 is, that is irretrievably broken and there's no longer our authority on the earth and it's completely gone and it's like we're all, it's all, the whole thing fails. So basically what I'm saying is um, there can be, that's, that's how I framed it, right? But now I'm actually... I've changed my mind in part because of your video and said, you know what? It's instead of trying to like just wiggle around. Well, what does it really mean to lead astray? I'm just saying, well, let's just say that whole phrase is the the whole statement is wrong. It's just not true. (laughs) And that's actually probably the simpler and most responsible and healthy way of, of taking what he said. And he felt like he had to say that, Mm -hmm. but it's, it just wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And and part of it is from what most people think lead astray means, they've led us astray a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So I can't like dance around what that means and find a way of of defending this statement. And even though there might be ways that you could take it in a way that's true, but I think overall there are there's people they have led us astray and they are leading us astray and they will lead us astray. I think mm-hmm. that needs to be said. Uh, quite clearly, in mm-hmm. order that we might be uh, hold our leaders accountable, in order that we might uh, fix these problems. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on these things? You know, I also had uh, another way to frame this prior to adopting this idea that you just talked about. I'm still under the impression that no leader can lead us astray if we're in tune with the spirit. And this is what is actually meant when we teach this idea that the prophet will never lead us astray. But even such an interpretation acknowledges that the prophet can lead us astray. Plus, we got plenty of evidence in both ancient and latter days of prophets doing just that. I believe I pointed to the example of Brother Brigham Young using a using the curse of Cain as justification for the priesthood and temple restrictions. And I acknowledged as well 
that the church repudiates that and other similar explanations for the priesthood and temple restrictions prior to 1978. It is indeed simpler to say that this statement by President Woodruff is just not true, at least not in the way we traditionally uh, understand it. So, right. Yeah. And another question, and this is a, an important theological tool, is to ask, how does this function? So let's talk about this statement by President Woodruff that the, that the Lord will never let the president of the church lead us astray. How does that function? And it functions differently today than it did when, when President Woodruff used it. Now, it's actually backwards. People are using it today backwards. People are using it today to defend the status quo, to mm-hmm. defend not changing things, to defend not cur- being curious about things, to defend the the um, abdicating their responsibility as individual spirit-bearing individuals to to check up on these things. And the way Woodruff used it was to to do the opposite. He was actually trying to defend a change. A change mm-hmm. that was highly controversial, yep. a change that was highly un, unprecedented, and they were not prepared for it yep. because most of the people at the, t- at the time believed that polygamy was an important tribal identity marker for God's people. It was important for exaltation. It was a, an important test. It was an important thing of all of this other stuff, and they couldn't, they could not conceive of the church without polygamy, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm not a historian of that period, but my sense is the people, that's what they thought. That's why it was so hard for them to stop. And that was so why he had to go through to such lengths to defend the change. So he's saying, look, what I'm telling you now is contrary to everything you, you've, you've heard or thought. It's different when what Brigham said. It's different what I said you know, in the past decade. Woodruff is defending a change. He's trying to get people to be open to change. And he's saying, look, God God really told me to change this, and that, and God wouldn't let me make this particular mistake if it weren't from God. And I think that had a persuasive power in getting people open to the change. And the other thing he did is he seems to, in, I don't have these, the problem, I don't even have any notes in front of me or any of this text in front of me, so I don't, I'm just making this all up. But I seem to remember that in his three excerpts that are published in the DNC, he actually invites people to say, hey, you think about it. You think about what would happen if our temples got taken away. You th- you take it to the Lord. And so yeah. he actually invites people to not just um, sustain it as a formality, but investigate it for themselves and Can get I read their that for own you, actually? witness of it. What? Can I actually read that? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Read it. Yeah, it says, the Lord has told me to ask the Latter-day Saints a question, and he also told me that if they would listen to what I said to them and answer the question put to them by the Spirit and power of God, they would all answer alike, and they would all believe alike with regard to this matter. That's the, that's the paragraph. Yeah, so my point was that the way this functions as it is that it invites participation, it invites accountability, it invites uh, curiosity— um, and it, uh, I think that the way it functions today, the way people use it is to, to say, look, the prophets don't have to even reconsider this because they can't be wrong. That's the, that's the, that's the opposite lesson right. of official declaration one. Right. We were wrong to continue poly- polygamy, practically, theologically, all these other things. 
um, as it was practiced in the 19th century. I just I don't want to condemn all polyamory as a whole, but we um, we needed to change, and the way this functioned was to invite accountability and to invite the contributions and the input and the consent of the people. Um, at least that's the way I interpret it. Maybe, uh, maybe President Windruff ended up exercising more dominion than he he had right to, and 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 by putting. But I don't know, and I think I should just. I'm kind of re- restating the same thing, but I'm just so surprised how people quote this thing that he said, and it's and not backwards the rest of it. Yes. from how it functions. Like. Yeah. <clears throat> Anyway, maybe we should go on to official declaration two. All right, sounds good. Um, I do have a couple of uh, you know prefatory things I want to say. In part, just mm-hmm. because I've already said more or less a lot of what I wanted to say in the uh, in the video that was released about a month ago. Um, and you know, thank you to those of y'all who took time to watch and share the video. But, you know, the, the things I want to say briefly uh, before going more into Official Declaration 2. Uh, this week I had another friend of mine, uh, you know, somebody who's black, tell me that, you know, they and their family won't be returning to church. Uh, I was disappointed by that. I mean, not mm-hmm. not in them, but, you know, in the church. Like her and her husband, I've known for half my life. Like we went to BYU together. They kind of like took me under their wing. They were literally the first black people I met when I got to BYU. And they got kids now. And uh, during the last seven years in particular, the racism and the homophobia is really getting to them because they can't always protect their kids. Like it's one thing to mess with me, but you know, my kids, like don't mess with my kids. Like that's kind of the point they're at right now. You know, don't create this hostile environment to me and my kids. Uh, you've said on the show, Derek, a while back that there's uh, something about this church that seems to validate or at the very least be complicit in things like white supremacy and patriarchy and other harmful constructs. And folks on the margins can't stick around for that because it's too harmful for them to stick around. I, I feel like I've implied it, but um, I don't think I've said it in a while. So just let me say this much now. As strong as my testimony of the gospel is, as much as I love Christ, as um, much as the Lord has sustained me over the last several years, it is exhausting to be here, and it is lonely, and I I really don't like that part of it. I, I respect any of my friends who decide to set some harder boundaries on their relationship with the church, like do what you got to do for your own mental and spiritual and emotional health. I support that 100%. I got my own reasons for being here that have both mental and spiritual components, but I, I feel called to stay at this point in my life, so I stay. But every time people of color, especially black folk leave, I mourn. Like, I mourn a lot because that's one more person's richness, beauty, and perspective and love that we won't be getting in the church, and we desperately need it. We've been needed it, and it's gone. Like, that's what I felt when uh, that friend of mine told me they're not coming back to church. That's one less person as well that I can look to to share this burden of making the church a more hospitable place for other folks we need at church and who are more than capable of enriching it if we got our own, if we got out of our own way. You know what I'm saying? Just, I don't, I don't like doing this alone and it feels Mm -hmm. lonely i I don't like being 
the guy in Sunday school that's got to call out the former bishop for saying questionable mess about slavery in the 1830s, or mean mugging the older white lady who just implied that black people in the room can't find our ancestors in our family history work whose records, language, land, and culture was stolen from them because they don't want to be found bad enough, but she can find her Irish ancestors just fine. I don't, I don't like that my congregation in my black neighborhood is primarily populated and run by white folks. I can't, I can't change that unless we are more deliberate about these conversations at church and elsewhere. These conversations, I mean, conversations like official declaration too, like what's up with that? What's up with the history of it? What's up with the racism that exists in and out of the pews? What do we do when massive acts of racism happen on a broad scale, when there are lynchings by lynchings by law enforcement, or when there are uh, riots um, and, you know, destruction of property that happen in America or other racial events. Like the reason I created this official Declaration 2 video is because I, I don't, or rather, I want there to be a way for y'all to start this conversation from a point that doesn't consider these harmful myths about the priesthood and temple restrictions at church, at seminary, or on social media, because I, I don't want to be the only one having it. Because that's exhausting. It, it gets mm -hmm. more exhausting the more I do it and the more time goes on. Because as the time goes, more people may be deciding that they can't be here. And again, I support them doing what they got to do, but I don't want to be alone. So if we like going to adequately address this, I, I think the conversation after watching this video and dispelling the myths of the priesthood band is going to be something along the lines of what does it mean that the that the church practiced a racist policy? How does that affect us today? What can we implement on a family, ward, or stake level that addresses and corrects those negative effects, including the general lack of black folks in the U.S. American church? Like, we're basically trying to acknowledge this past policy contributes to a present problem that we desperately need, desperately need to fix, and I don't want us to miss this opportunity since we don't have any others coming up in the near future, if, it, if any. So uh, please take the opportunity, if you haven't already, to go ahead, share the video if you still plan on uh, speaking on Official Declaration 2 this week in your Come Follow Me study groups, in your seminaries, your social media, whatever else. So like, just consider that uh, my final appeal, if you will. But anyway, I've been talking for a while. Derek, would you like to uh, go into the text and I'll circle back to a couple of things? Yeah, I think this is, people want to know how revelation happens, and you have to really read, and I don't even think it's reading between the lines, you just have to actually look at what it says and think about what it means, and it, it tells you, I think there were three factors that prompted the white leaders at the time to ask God for fresh insight on this issue, uh -huh. and number one is that they observed the changing world. Yep. So at this point, you have the restored gospel expanding to many nations, including Brazil and around the world. Yeah. And you also have the civil rights movement here in the United States. Um, and so it was a looking at the changing world that you see what they says. It says, this in turn has inspired us with a desire to extend to every worthy member of the church, all the privileges and blessings which the gospel affords. So they looked and at the this, this. By the way, that this in turn is like before that says the expansion of the work, as Derek has outlined. Uh, I mean, it's primarily the expansion of the work of the restored gospel, joining the church in ever increasing numbers. 
Like that is what has mm-hmm. been the impetus or one of the things that the specific thing that they name in the inspiration process. And so what's interesting is that they had the desire to extend the blessing first, and then they checked in with the Lord. It's not like the Lord hit them with, with it. Right. They had to want to go to the Lord with this. And maybe right. for all the wrong and unfair reasons, waiting for white people to take it to the Lord is an injustice. But that's uh, what they're saying is what happened is that they had the desire first, and then the Lord confirmed it. Then the second thing is they must have changed their perceptions of prior church leaders. So they were looking at every predecessor from from Brigham, Brigham Young up until Spencer W. Kimball, looking at what all they consistent, apparently consistently said. But now if you look at the clue in the text of official declaration too, it says that they were aware of the, quote, promises made by the prophets and presidents of the church who have preceded us that at some time in God's eternal plan, all of our brethren who are worthy may receive the priesthood, close quote. This is a clue that they changed their 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 perspective of prior church leaders. Originally, right. they looked at all the leaders for reasons to keep the discrimination in place and to keep the inertia and to keep the tradition. Now they looked back and said, you know, we're not going to look at what Brigham said uh, in defense of the discrimination. We're going to look at the fact that Brigham himself promised that uh, that that this change will happen someday. So they, they switched their view and looked for reasons to be inclusive and then that changed their perception of prior church leaders. And the third thing is, and this is really important, that they knew the people who were directly affected. These church leaders were moved by, quote, witnessing the faithfulness of those from whom the priesthood has been withheld, close quote. Mm-hmm. So they saw these people. They knew in Brazil what was going on, people working hard to to build a temple that they could never go into. And they they saw something. They saw these amazing people who were arbitrarily and unfairly excluded with no basis in divine revelation, and yet they responded with faith anyway. And so that is what prompted the brethren to plead long and earnestly in behalf of these. Uh, anyway, my point is, this never would have happened if we had black folks in leadership from the very beginning. And we did, right? With with mm-hmm. Joseph, we had some, some black folks. But if we had black apostles the whole time, this never would have happened. It only happened because white people figured that they could make this decision and had the right to do so. I don't know if that's a good point or not. Because, see, I, as a white person, I probably should not talk too much about that. No, it's fine. It's but I fine. think it's important to note, name that this can't just be a study of black people. This needs to be a study of white fragility and white privilege and the the fact that, yeah— White people made this decision to implement the ban, and then white people made the decision to end it. And why why were white people making these decisions in the first place is my problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, I should probably stop talking. No, it's all good. It's all good. And I also actually, I don't think I'm going to circle back to anything. I think with what you have brought up, there's nothing else I really need to add. And we're 
we're already at an hour anyway, so we can go ahead and close things up if you don't have anything else to add. I want to caution people not to do what some people do, and I've seen this done, is people will talk about Official Declaration 2 only for the purposes of some other analogy, right? Like, Mm. bringing it up only when you want to talk about, oh, here's a change that can happen. We can change for women. We can change for LGBTs. We can change this because, look, we we fixed it for black folks. And first of all, we didn't fix it for black folks. There's a lot of work to be done. (laughs) And two, we can't just pretend that that is like the long past and and no one is currently affected by it, right? Dude, dude. We can't just, we can't use official declaration two only for the purpose of some other thing, right? We need to keep black folks centered when we talk about official declaration two. Mm Mm-hmm. A great point. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, <clears throat> if there is a, if there is nothing else, I just want to uh, be, before we transition into the into the end game here, I want to let y'all know that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last fifty plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. Uh, The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us at Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. And you can find us on Facebook. I also forgot to say, when I was talking about option one, two, and three, that if you're just recently listening, you may not know what I'm talking about. I'm referring to Rabbi Benet Lappy's Crash Theory, and you can get this by going to tinyurl.com slash crash theory and watching this video, this TED Talk, where Rabbi Benet Lappy talks about uh, crash theory. Yes, thank you for sharing that. We regularly regularly make reference to uh, crash theory, but like, yeah, we should let people know where to find that. Um, also, want to give a special thanks Special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing our episode transcripts, making the show more accessible to folks. Also, uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, our social media presence and uh, the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines. That is, uh, includes Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, uh, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines uh, also include the Faithful Feminist episodes and Holy Human episodes from mm-hmm. the same week. So you can have a uh, one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me from the Margin Study Helps. Uh, you can find the link to these outlines in the show notes as well as the drop-down menu on our website. Um, the link is tinyurl.com slash outlines. Is that right, Derek? Right. Right. Okay. And uh, the same goes for our uh, transcripts. You can find those in our show notes as well as uh, the drop down menu. 
Um, and also thank you to everybody who's been posting your end of year Spotify uh, Spotify statistics. A lot of y'all have shown that we were uh, either number one on your list of podcasts or at least in your top five. So thank you for sharing that love. It's always uh, it's always cool to just see that people are listening out here and further that we are the most frequently listened to podcast that y'all got. Like that blows my mind that y'all be listening to us like that. Uh, so Thank you. That uh, that means a lot. Thank mm-hmm. you for sharing that with us. Did I miss anything, Derek? No, but stay tuned for next week. Yeah, that's going to be something. we're going to be talking. I, I need to name this. Is that the <clears throat> proclamation on the family is not part of our canonized scriptures. It is not published in our scriptures. It has never been um, declared to be scripture by any... Uh, um, any uh, the common consent of the church, right? So, but it is still uh, snuck into our "Come Follow Me" curriculum, mm-hmm. and that I think is a um, an exploitation of power. That mm-hmm. they are they have the power to publish this, and so they're going to sneak this in there and artificially inflate the authority and relevance of this. Um, and what's funny is it's not like, oh, well, this is just a historical thing because you know what they didn't put? They didn't put this new proclamation that we had in what whatever year this was, like five years, like three years ago. When was it? You know what I'm talking about? The proclamation on the oh, restoration? Yeah. Proclamation they the didn't restoration. put that in there. Not so as a lesson, which, no. Which completely betrays their bias. It's not like, oh, we're just doing some recent proclamations because they didn't do the most recent one. They're clearly... And unfairly, reaching back to the mid '90s for this proclamation on the family, and they're not even putting in this uh, the, the new proclamation, which I actually think is more relevant for our conversations today. But they don't put that in the so you can see the hypocrisy that they have by putting in the proclamation on the on the family. And and boy, we're gonna have, we're gonna have a lot to talk about. And for people that say, "Well, I've heard everything Derek has to say," no, you're gonna hear more because I'm gonna <laughs> say something that I've never said before. Because we've covered the proclamation already fairly thoroughly in in a couple of other episodes, and we're gonna link back to them as well. Yes, and Derek, like if y'all don't know this about Derek, Derek is committed to saying something new about things, even if he's talked about them a thousand times. So. I'm excited to hear what Derek has for next week. And also, this lesson will be discussed in Sunday School. While we won't get to talk about Articles of Faith, OD1 and OD2 in uh, in Sunday School, we will get to do that for Family Proclamation. So definitely tune into that because it's going to be one of your best tools when it comes mm-hmm, to... Mm-hmm. And uh, cope in advance with what you're going to say. So how, don't So you don't have to decide in the moment if or what you should say. Just have it prepared. Anyway... Thank you so much for being uh, frequent and faithful listeners. We will see you all next week. Bye-bye. See you next week.